0: Good afternoon, Facebook land. It is Sunday afternoon, and that means that Bill has a Bible study from the Book of Mark uh, coming to you live from Bill and Joyce's house in Tyler, Texas. Uh, Glad that you are joining us, and I think that we'll have a few come along as we go. A few that we'll watch a little bit later. You can watch it here on my Facebook page afterwards, after the fact, when it's posted in my timeline. You can certainly watch it uh, on our website, westerwin.com. A little bit later on, on our video archive page, it will show there as well. And of course, you can also watch it uh, on our Westerwin Church of Christ Facebook page. I hope that this is coming through. It's looking uh, like uh, the uh, audio and video may not be quite in sync, but hopefully they'll get together. And uh, we have a great lesson today from a wonderful chapter or two in Mark, the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. Nice to see my sister Barbara on here. Great to see you. And I enjoyed getting to uh, kind of uh, bump you this morning (laughs) as we were passing in the halls, in the aisles at church. My cousin Gail is here. My dear friends Larry and Lynn Murphy. Pat is joining us again. Uh, and so I think that we have quite a group that's going and I appreciate everyone's um, taking part in this. Um, The study of the Gospel of Mark is a great study. Anytime you're reading through the Gospels and you're looking at the life of Christ, it's a great study, and so I want us to do that. This last uh, week, last Sunday, we talked about the audacity of Jesus as he had Uh, the audacity to forgive sins, even uh, as he had to prove himself, uh, healing a man, but first pronouncing forgiveness of sins upon him, Um, socializing with sinners. He called Levi or Matthew, the, uh, the author of the Gospel of Matthew, one of the 12 apostles, as we'll see in this chapter, to be one of his closest followers and went and had dinner at his house. And Matthew being a tax collector, Um, invited the people that would hang around with tax collectors in the first century Jewish world, and that was primarily people who were considered outcasts by so many others. And um, he had the audacity to call for change, to teach with authority, and people appreciated that, and they respected that, and they they said, he's not like anybody else that we've ever heard, and that was the truth, and he still, you could say that same thing of him still, Um, So now we're going to get into some other events there at the end of Mark 2 and throughout chapter 3 that emphasize uh, Jesus beginning to develop that conflict with the Jewish leaders. And uh, also we're getting to see a little bit of where his focus is going to be and where his uh, attention is going to be as he interacts with different people including his own family. Uh, One of the things that um, Jesus comes into conflict with uh, the Jewish leaders over uh, very quickly as we see here in Mark and then throughout his ministry is uh, is his take on the Sabbath. The Sabbath, of course, being one of the Ten Commandments, certainly going back to the time of creation And uh, and so it's been a um, it's something that comes in pretty quickly in the ministry of Jesus Christ. So got a few more coming on, my dear friends, uh, Cindy and Eric Mosley, Joe and Lenny. Nice to see y'all. Susan Leigh, great to see you, Susan. I enjoyed getting to holler at you across the auditorium this morning. Um, And my dear friend and sister Grace Hepler out of North Carolina, how I love her and appreciate her. Uh, So here we go. Uh, Mark chapter 2, beginning at verse 23, and um, uh, Jesus makes this great statement. In uh, the last part of Mark 2 and the first part of Mark 3, uh, the Sabbath is comes into the crosshairs between Jesus and his followers. And so we're going to read two instances, uh, two events that happened in the life of Jesus, and then we'll kind of look through them a little bit. So in Mark chapter 2, beginning at verse 23, one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He and- This is kind of interesting because sometimes they ask the disciples about why Jesus is doing something. This time, they ask Jesus why his disciples are doing something. Um, he answered, verse 25, have you never read what David did? When he and his companions were hungry and in need, in the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, verse 27 and 28 of Mark 2, The Sabbath was made for man, not man, for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. We'll come back to that, but let's read another instance uh, regarding the Sabbath. This doesn't happen at the same time, but Mark tells us in the beginning of Mark chapter 3, another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Isn't it tragic that that was their concern, not the well-being of this man? Um, I I fear sometimes. I have been like that too many times, and we have been like that too many times. It's why Jesus told uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Um, And uh, anyway, uh, let's keep reading. Uh, Some of them, again, verse 2, were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal the man on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. What a great way Jesus takes to identify what is the real issue here. Verse five, he looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out And began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Well, let's take a little bit of a closer look at these two instances and provide maybe a little bit of understanding along the way. Um, And at the end of chapter 2, there's this story of Jesus' disciples uh, in a grain field on the Sabbath. uh, And they're hungry, and so they get some grain, which is unlawful uh, by the letter of the law to do on the Sabbath. Uh, six days you're to work and then the seventh day you're to rest and worship and here they are uh, providing uh, some kind of energy to get their uh, food. Um, it's interesting how that all works and it's interesting how Jesus responds to them. He tells them this interesting story of David when he was fleeing from King Saul. King Saul was trying to kill him and King da- uh, David, who would be king after King Saul dies, uh, would um, uh, had done nothing wrong. And, uh, and yet he's having to run for his life. And so in one of those instances, uh, in 1 Samuel 21, he finds himself uh, in the town of Nob. And it is uh, in the presence of one of the priests. And the priest is not uh, Ahimelech, but rather uh, it is uh, Ahimelech and not his son, uh, Abiathar. Uh, and, Je- and Jesus talks about the time of Abiathar, who is the son of Ahimelech. Uh, that David has this interaction with, um, and it's interesting. This story, tragic in 1 Samuel 21 and 22, because while Jesus is, uh, while uh, David is there with his uh, with his men, uh, they're looking for something to eat, and there's nothing to eat except the consecrated bread for the priest, which, according to the law in Leviticus 24. Uh, was uh, to be eaten only by the priests, the descendants, uh, not even just of Aaron, but of, of, uh, but not just of Levi, but of Aaron, and uh, uh, and so obviously uh, Ahimelech could could eat that, and the fellow priests could, but not, um, not David, and yet David uh, does that, and they have a little bit of interaction to see how pure David and his men are, and. Uh, And the priest decides to go ahead and give that to them. But there's a man there, an Edomite, uh, the descendant of Edom, um, uh, by the name of Doeg, D-O-E-G. And he is one of King Saul's servants, but he was there. He had been detained, and he was there in the presence of the priest and of David. And he sees what happens. And later on, when King Saul is wondering what's going on, why aren't they able to get uh, David, uh, Doeg... Uh, rats out on the, this whole instance. And he says, I was there. Uh, David and his men came in, and, and the priest, uh, Ahimelech, uh, the father of Abiathar, uh, gave them some of the consecrated bread. And so King Saul goes and uh, goes to them and has them come to him. And, and he questions him about that. And um, he has many of the priests put to death. Uh, because of what they did, which is an interesting story in and of itself, uh, because we talk about how uh, God delivers us and how we look to God for protection. And I'm sure the priest did that. In fact, when he's interacting with Saul, he tells him, look, there's no servant more loyal to you than than David. Why are you after him? And yet he has him put to death and the others as well. Uh, His fellow Jews wouldn't do it. Uh, But Doag, the Edomite, um, he does. And I believe there are 70 of the priests that are are put to death. Uh, It's a horrible, horrible story. And it's one of those stories where you realize, you know, God's protection is beyond this world, beyond this life. He doesn't always protect us from evil and from uh, difficulty and even from suffering in this life. And he didn't protect the priests that day, even though he had done a good, good thing. Uh, and David, um, one of the things that happens is uh, this man, Abiathar, that Jesus mentions, is the only surviving priest. He's the son of Ahimelech, and, and he flees, and he goes to David, and David David tells him, look, I'm, I'm the one responsible for the death of all of these priests. He says, but the man who put them to death is, and is threatening you now is threatening me also. And so uh, David is able to interact with them. But, of course, as Jesus looks back on that very interesting story, uh, he's, he's speaking to the Jewish leaders of his day. And he's telling them, look, uh, you need to look past the letter of the law, uh, because this happened in the days of King, of, of, uh, king David before he was even king. And uh, my disciples are doing nothing wrong. They are not desecrating the Sabbath as you might I think, and so it's very interesting uh, how that all works out. We remember the story of Hezekiah uh, and the Passover in Second Chronicles chapter 30, uh, when uh, they were having such a great time of worship, having restored the Passover. One of the um, one of the things that Hezekiah does to try to bring reform uh, to the Southern Kingdom of Judah, and and they have such a great time that they extend it. And there are provisions in the law in Numbers chapter nine for uh, for that, but not simply because of that reason. Um, and and yet they are blessed, and God hears their prayers and accepts their worship. Well, those are those are very interesting and challenging circumstances. Uh, we can't use them as an excuse to just worship God any way we want because we want to. Uh, but it is to tell us, as as Jesus reminds us, don't. Don't miss the forest for the trees. Don't get so tied up uh, in, uh, in some of the details that you seem to be so concerned about that you miss the more important things. Jesus, uh, in, in Matthew 23, as he's pronouncing these woes upon the religious leaders, the scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, as he says in Matthew 23, he reminds them, look, you need to concern yourself with the details of the law, but don't lose the important matters Uh, uh, of being concerned about loving others and being merciful, uh, just as uh, Hosea said. And as Jesus quotes when he calls, uh, when he is there with Matthew in Matthew chapter 9, and he says, don't forget that God said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Doesn't mean that sacrifice and the details of worship are not important. Doesn't mean that at all. We see other instances in the Bible where it's emphasized how important that is. But at the same time, we recognize that, um, that someone very special is standing before us. And the Jewish leaders fail to recognize that. Um, and, and so Jesus offers up that commentary in verses 27 and 28. The Sabbath was made for man, not the other way around. Uh, which is greater, the Sabbath or the, the, the humanity that it was created for? And Jesus says, not only is that true, but the one standing before you is Lord even of the Sabbath. And uh, I think that we need to remember these lessons as we try to apply them today. We have to be very careful, I think. But we also have to remember that there were some things that Jesus tried to bring our attention to as being of utmost importance. And I think we have to remember that. Uh, Then, of course, that story beginning in chapter three, this man with the shriveled hand. It's just horrible that the religious leaders would be more concerned about Jesus breaking the Sabbath than they are about this man. It's it's similar to the story in John 8 when they drag this woman caught in the very act of adultery, as it says, um, and throw her at Jesus' feet and say, what are you going to do? Are you going to judge her according to the law and pronounce uh, the sentence of death for adultery? Or are you going to be merciful and forgive like you seem to do? And they thought they had him. Uh, but Jesus, of course, as you know from that very familiar story, uh, tells them whoever is without sin can throw the first rock and they all leave. And then he tells the woman herself, look, I'm not going to accuse you and condemn you either, but you need to straighten out your life. You need to go your way and leave your life of sin. So he is faithful to the law, but he's also faithful and uh, being merciful to this woman, also a part of the law uh, here. Uh, there's this man with a shriveled hand, and and Jesus uh, looks at them, and he asks them this great question in verse four: Which is lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill it? In other instances, he reminds them: Look, if you have an ox that falls into a ditch and it's on the Sabbath, you're not going to wait till Monday to save it. You're going to put out the energy and expend the energy to save that animal, and. And, and it's, it's an idea of important and, uh, and, and needy and um, urgent aspects of the law uh, versus doing, doing the right thing and remembering that the Sabbath was made for man, not the other way around. Uh, we're not uh, the servants of the Sabbath. Jesus says the Sabbath is our servant. It's a part of God's law, and we need to respect that and obey that, and he did. But he also recognized that here was a man created in the image of God who was suffering, and he deserved to be delivered, and Jesus could do that, and he did it right then. It's interesting how they respond to his question in verse 4, they remain silent. And I love the way Mark puts it, because Mark, uh, others uh, give us an indication, uh, a story about this uh, incident as well. But it's Mark in verse 5 who says, he looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at this, their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand and heal him." Jesus was very, very angry uh, at them because of uh, their trampling on the life and value of this man. And he let them know. And then that verse in verse six, then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. The Pharisees and the Herodians get together for their common enemy. Uh, One person has written two groups who would never dream of sharing a common meal, nevertheless agree to cooperate in eliminating a common threat. Uh, The Herodians were sympathetic to Herod, who was sympathetic to the Romans, obviously, and the the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, very strict adherence to the law, observing the law, but they were able to work together. Uh, to try to destroy Jesus, and ultimately they did, but not really, not really. Well, we continue on reading through the book of Mark uh, in Mark chapter three, and we'll give a little bit of a, a summary of these and just read, them, read through as we go. Uh, Mark three, verse seven, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake and a large crowd from Galilee followed that Northern province uh, in the Holy Land. Uh, Galilee was his home base, where Capernaum was, where he grew up in Nazareth, where the Sea of Galilee was. Uh, Of course, Judea in the south, where Bethlehem and Jerusalem were, and Samaria uh, in the middle. Uh, When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. They basically came to him from everywhere around. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many and those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Wouldn't you? I certainly would. Whenever the impulse, uh, whenever the impure spirit saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. And we've seen that uh, throughout the gospels, including here in Mark. And in Matthew chapter 12 and in other places, Jesus gives a, uh, the, the gospel writer, gives a little bit of a reasoning why Jesus would command them to be silent. It brought a lot of trouble on him. It kept him from being able to move about. He didn't want to draw attention to himself because of his humility. And uh, that was in fulfillment of scripture from Isaiah. He wouldn't ring his own bell. He wouldn't toot his own horn. But he also recognized that uh, it was important not to rush things. And he knew that there would come a time when people would be openly confessing his name and ultimately he would die on the cross because of it. And then he appoints the 12 apostles. Uh, It's interesting that in Luke's version, in Luke 6, uh, he spends the night in prayer and then calls these 12 men to be apostles. Verse 13, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted and they came to him. He appointed twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. Uh, These are the twelve he appointed, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, Simon Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Uh, To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means uh, sons of thunder. And remember, James is the first one, the first of these apostles who will be killed for the faith in Acts chapter 12, uh, John's brother. And these three are named first, Peter, James, and John. And they're the three that are especially close to Jesus during his ministry. They're the three that go with him into the room when he heals the daughter of Jairus and raises her from the dead. Uh, They are the three who are on the Mount of Transfiguration. And they are the three who go a little bit farther with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane uh, just before he is betrayed and killed. And then verse 18, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, who is responsible for bringing Peter to Jesus. Uh, Andrew is mentioned, and then Philip, Bartholomew, also called Nathaniel. Matthew, who has been called Levi, but here on out he was referred to as Matthew. Levi, the Hebrew name. uh, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who uh, betrayed him. These are the 12 who would be closest and most involved with Jesus in his ministry and who I believe in Acts chapter 2 would receive the Holy Spirit in an extraordinary way and be uh, speaking in uh, other languages and able to pass that gift along of uh, the miraculous, extraordinary acts uh, of the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, "Uh, then Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. I think if we give them the benefit of the doubt, his family was very worried about him. Uh, but here they say he's out of his mind. Other other times he has a devil, he has a demon inside of him. They're, they think that he's lost it because he refuses to take care of himself and has thrown himself into this ministry, they think, in an unhealthy way. We're going to read more about his interaction with them at the end of this chapter. Uh, But we have to remember that what this indicates is that they were not believers in him yet. And it's interesting, as we have said, his mother Mary, uh, uh, with her other children, Jesus' half-brothers and sisters, including James and Jude, who would write those two books of the New Testament. And James, who according to Acts, uh, was one of the primary leaders of the church at Jerusalem. Uh, in addition to the apostles, of course, but he is mentioned as the one who is especially significant and and actually takes the lead in the discussion in Acts 15 when they meet in that conference at Jerusalem to discuss what they need to require of these new Gentile converts. Um, Verse 22 of Mark 3, and the teachers of the law or scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Another name for Satan. Uh, So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. So he first of all responds to this, you're driving out demons by the power of Satan himself. Um, He first of all responds to them in a logical way and then he responds to them theological. Um, How can Satan drive out Satan? Verse 23, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. And so he gives these little very quick illustrations, very quick parables, a very, very quick metaphors talking about, hey, look, this you're not being logical here. Uh, you don't you know, th- there's a reason why they say divide and conquer. There's a reason why that's the strategy, because they're weaker. And so Jesus says, look, Satan is not going to fight against himself. Uh, a person in a home that has a strong man, in this case, Satan, uh, the way to get to the possessions, you have to deal with the strong man first. You have to deal with the, with the head of the house first. Um, and a divided house is easily overtaken. Uh, So Jesus says that's not logical, but then he goes a little bit further. Uh, In very similar ways, he says some of the same things uh, in Matthew chapter 12 as he talks about this sin against the Holy Spirit. Um, And so we read, starting in verse 28, uh, Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven they are guilty of an eternal sin he said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit and so we ask ourselves what is jesus talking about here and we read about that again in matthew chapter 12 and and um i had a lady in arlington texas when i was there who came through our hearts and hands ministry and she um we helped her with some food and clothing and we always would ask. I would be there on some days. My dear friend and brother Ken Smithson would be there on some days, most days. And, and we would ask if there was anyone who wanted to talk to somebody about, about the Lord, about the Bible, if they had a question or needed, to, needed prayer, uh, we would pray with them. And one lady came to me and she said, yeah, I have a question. And it was about this very thing, about the unpardonable sin. And I said, and so we talked about it and I said, I'd be glad to get together with you after today if you want. Well, she said, yeah. So we met together several times and talked about this question, the, the unpardonable sin, until finally I had to tell her, look, I've told you everything I know about this. I, I, I think there's a lot of other important scripture that we should should ask about and we should discuss if that's all right with you. Well, she never came back. She had this issue, her pet issue. And I think she was using it as an escape to not deal with the rest of the teaching of Scripture. And I think sometimes we do that, too. We find that passage of Scripture that excites us, that interests us, that maybe confuses us even, and we won't let that one go. And we lose the rest of the 66 books of the Bible in the process. I think people who get lost in those end-of-the-world prophecies Um, that we see so prevalent, even still today, um, that's a problem because there's so much other teaching of Scripture. Jesus clearly, clearly, in Matthew 24 and in uh, Mark 13 and Luke 21 and uh, the passages that speak about the end of the world, such as 2 Peter 3, uh, and First and Second Thessalonians, they all do that for a purpose, not so that we'll know when it's going to happen and, and so that we'll be able to figure that out, but they're telling us that this is going to happen, and so therefore, how should you live your life today? That's the whole purpose behind that. Uh, Jesus even acknowledges in Matthew 24, look, I, I, the Son of Man doesn't even know when that time will be, but that doesn't matter. There's going to be all kinds of things that happen. That's just going to be a part of human history. And we see that that's the case. But he said, look, when it happens, the important thing is that you're watching and you're ready for it. That's what's important. And here, as he talks about this unpardonable sin, this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, what exactly is that? Well, we know that when you're dealing with a difficult scripture, the first thing you want to remember is that it's not going to contradict other scripture, and the the great teaching of scripture is is that God forgives sins, and so whatever this is, we know that it's it doesn't mean that you can do something that God could never forgive that that's inconsistent with the rest of scripture. Um, John 3.16, for example, Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That scripture we talked about this morning in the sermon at West Erwin Church of Christ from Romans chapter 5. While we were still sinners, God demonstrated his love uh, by giving Christ for us. And so God forgives sins. That's the business he's in. Um, And he does that through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ, through our response of faith and our trusting in him and in that sacrifice. But if you turn away from that, if you attribute the works of Jesus to something else, to something evil rather than to the Lord God, then, then you've left yourself with no hope of salvation. There's just nowhere else to turn if you turn away from Jesus. And I believe that that's what Jesus is talking about here. Look, if you attribute my works to the to the to the devil, to the adversary, to the Satan, instead of to to God, then uh, then you're without hope. Uh, he said it differently in John eight verse twenty four. Unless you believe that I am He or that I am the Great I am, um, you will die in your sins. Um, that is. There's no other way to the Father, Jesus says in John 14, verse 6, than the one who is the way and the truth and the life. I believe that's what Jesus is speaking about here as well. And then we finally get back to his family uh, in verse 31. Uh, Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent someone in to call him, a crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, "'Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. So they come and they finally get there and they're outside, and they're, they send somebody in to tell them, "Hey, we're here. You need to come out and go go home with us. Um, and then look at Jesus' response in verse thirty three and following, "Who are my brothers? Who are my mother and my brothers?" He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, "Here are my mother' And my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Well, I don't think he's being disrespectful to his mother or the rest of his family, but he's drawing an important lesson to them. Just like he wasn't being disrespectful of the Sabbath, he was drawing an important lesson. And the lesson was this look, those who do the will of the Father are the ones who are my family. And he had said that many times throughout the gospels, Um, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. He says in Matthew seven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven, he talks about hearing his words and doing them being like the, the man who built his house on a strong foundation rather than on sand at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7. Here he does the same thing in contrasting his family, his family who did not believe in him, his family who at this time said he's out of his mind, we need to take control of him. Jesus said, no, 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 no. The ones who are my family are the ones who do my father's will. And that's still true today. Uh, By his teaching and his example, Jesus calls us to put God first. In Matthew 6, as you know, he says, Seek first his kingdom, God's kingdom, and his righteousness, and everything else will fall into place. Uh, Jesus was very focused in coming to do the will of the Father, and we must be the same. This lesson is about the focus of Jesus. He tried to draw them not just to the Sabbath, but to the one who stood before them, who was the Lord of the Sabbath. He tried to remind them that he had a mission and he called men, his apostles, to help him in that mission. He reminded them that the Holy Spirit of God is to be praised and to be attributed the works of God, uh, certainly not uh, the, the enemy, uh, Satan himself. And even now with his family, calls us to focus on God causes, uh, calls us to have the right priorities, to put God first, and then our family uh, and ourselves, and then the other aspects of our lives. But we must put God uh, and his word and his church first and call on ourselves to do the work of, uh, of the Father. Uh, Jesus focused on doing the will of the Father And he calls on us to focus on that today as well. Look forward to being with you again on Tuesday and Thursday as we look at the book of Colossians and a week from today again as we get back into the Gospel of Mark and look at Mark chapter 4. God bless.